You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can take out uh, your device and uh, go to Hebrews chapter 4. You go to BibleGateway.com or you can Google ESV Bible and you'll find uh, Hebrews chapter 4 there. Or you can even take one of the pew Bibles that's there on the ground next to you, a little black hardback Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that is yours to keep. You can have that. That would be our gift to you. And today we keep plowing through our, our series through the book of Hebrews where we keep saying and really keep seeing every week how this is about looking to Jesus no matter where we are in our lives or what we're facing or what's barreling towards us, that we keep looking to Christ. And here in Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14, I I think you'll discover one of the most encouraging passages for your life in the Bible. If you don't have a life verse or anything that's kind of like that, that would be so Um, uplifting to you in a moment's notice, I think Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 can be one of those passages for you. And as we do every week, if you're new and if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God. And we'll begin in verse 14. And the Spirit tells us, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come to you now, drawing near to the throne of grace in the power and the name and in the blood of your Son. So would you give us mercy and grace now to help? Help us to hear your word. Help us to resist the devil. You promise us in your word that we resist him, he will flee. You also promise us that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So now, Lord, would you draw near to us? Be with us now, Holy Spirit. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm really shocked at the state of our country this moment that America's Funniest Home Videos is still on TV. It has been on air. I don't think it's ever going to go off air. It's been on since 1989. Incredible. I think the only other show that's probably still on since 1989 is your local news. And it's probably not the same newscasters. Uh, This show is the remaining vestige of the 80s. I mean, the format hasn't changed. It's still videos of people getting hurt people pranking each other, and animals doing funny things. And it's all these people doing crazy things because they actually think they can do it, but they clearly cannot. They do some of these things because they really do believe, I can do this. They believe they can jump over that fence without a running start. And they don't make it. 
They believe that dancing on a table they bought from Dollar Tree isn't problematic. (laughs) And it is. But here's really the reason why all these things happen. Because what you believe is what you do. What you believe is what you do. Whether it's some silly physical act or what you believe about God. That powers your life. What you believe about God is how you live. If you think God is only about catching people in their sins, then when you sin, you'll hide from him. But what Hebrews is showing us today, that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you've been redeemed and renewed by the cross of Christ, you live right now in the reign of grace. And if you believe that you live in the reign of grace, then you actually will live like you live in the reign of grace. As I was saying earlier, I think this passage, I hope, will become one of the beacons of your life. I mean, all of God's word is precious to God's people. But there are times and there are seasons where God gives us verses and passages that become beacons and buoys and lighthouses in our lives. When the waves are crashing and life is pummeling us, we see the buoy of God's word to help us in time of need. When the darkness and the valley of the shadow of death is encircling us, we see beams from the lighthouse of God's word to encourage us. And Hebrews 4 can be one of these great passages for your lives because you, you need it. Because don't you, don't you get frustrated or even confused with your own sinfulness? I know we get frustrated with other people's sins. That's easy. But what about our sin? Those mean thoughts you had this week, that if anyone knew you thought them, they would be shocked. That fear you had when you were thinking about telling someone about Jesus this past week. That anxiety you have when you try to go to sleep at night. And even the swell of lustful thoughts over that coworker or someone or something you saw on social media the grumpy impatience you had towards your children. I mean, you start to look at your life and start to look at your week and your sins. It's really easy to become discouraged, to feel hopeless and helpless. Like, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a loser. I'm such a big disappointment. Or you think something like, I guess I'm never going to change. I guess it's just going to be like this for the rest of my life. I mean, last week, the very last verse we saw last week, look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So if we have to give an account for our lives and you look over your life this past week, it can get discouraging really fast. I'm going to give an account for this, what I thought, what I did. It doesn't look good. Unless, unless the gospel is true. And it is because we have Jesus. Look at verse 14. So since we have to give an account for our lives, now he flies into verse 14. Since then, since we have to give an account for our lives, what? We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have a high priest. And now, listen, in Judaism, a high priest is a gigantic deal. 
The high priest was the representative. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. The high priest was the representative to God for the nation of Israel, kind of representing the people and who they are and what they're about and kind of going on behalf of them for God, to God for their sins, offering sacrifices for them, praying for them. And remember, these Jewish Christians, they're they're toying with the idea of going back to Judaism, of leaving Christianity, of leaving Jesus behind because all of the pressures that they're getting from the culture. So they're saying, let's go back to the temple. Let's go back to the sacrifices. Let's go back to the priests and to the high priests and on and on. And here the writer of Hebrews tells them, no, listen, you don't need to go back to those high priests. You have a high priest. You have Christ. And not just any priest, you have the great, look at verse 14, you have a great high priest, a final one, the ultimate one. And notice, we have, have him now. We have. You possess it. It's yours right now. If you are a Christian, you have this blessing in Christ, Christ himself. What does that mean? It means you have a representative in Jesus. When the time comes to give an account for your life and everything you've done or haven't done, you have someone who will stand in your place, your great high priest, Jesus himself, giving an account for your life, his life in your place, presented by your great high priest. You have the payment for your sins in the great high priest, not because he offered the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, because he offered the life and offered the blood of himself on the cross for your sins and for mine. And this great high priest, the reason why he is still great is that he rose from the dead. The Bible says what in verse 14? That this great high priest who passed through the heavens, he isn't a corpse right now. He's not a pile of bone dust and fragments somewhere in Jerusalem, but he is risen from the dead and ascended to the heavenly places, sitting at the Father's right hand. And we now have access to God because of Jesus, God the Son. That's what he calls him, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. See, all the other high priests in Judaism, they were, they were the only ones who are allowed to enter behind this thick curtain in the temple and go into what was called the Holy of Holies. They were the only one who could go, and they could only go once a year. But this great high priest, Jesus, he did more. He did something greater and better. At his death, the curtain, the actual curtain in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from everything else in the temple, was ripped in half from top to bottom, showing now the way to God is open. But Jesus didn't tear that curtain just so we could enter into the Holy of Holies. At that curtain tear, it's like Jesus is saying, I'm not taking you just to the Holy of Holies. I am taking this curtain and I'm throwing it in the trash and I'm giving you access into the heavens to God the Father himself where you can be seated with me forever in the heavenly places. And we can reign and rule over the universe together with me. Do you see the contrast he's making to these Jewish Christians and to us? You want to go back to the temple? You want to go back to this holy of holies curtain? You want to go back to that high priest? No, you have a great high priest. The one who destroyed the temple and the destruction of his body, the temple. You don't have to, you want access into the holy of holies? No. How about you be brought by Jesus himself 
to God himself. How about Christ representing you before the Father? And if those are true, if you really do have a great high priest, if you really did pass through the heavens, if he really is the son of God, look at what he says we should do now. If all these things are true in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to those truths, knowing who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, that he is the son of God, that he is our great high priest, that he is our representative, that he is our savior. So hold fast. These Jewish Christians are being reminded who Jesus is. If Jesus is these things, we should hold fast to him. If he's not these things, then who cares? If Jesus is not any of these things in verse 14, none of us should be here. This would be the saddest way you could spend your week. But if Jesus is these things, this is the best thing you could be doing right now. So would you hold fast to him no matter what? These Jewish Christians are being reminded, hold fast because the pressure is coming. The temptation to abandon is coming. So what would you do if it actually became difficult to be a Christian in our culture? I assume it will be. Physically, financially. Listen, beloved, you do what you believe. You do what you trust. Your behaviors are propelled by your beliefs. You see it right, right here in verse 14, how he's appealing to them to believe Jesus is your great high priest. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is alive in the heavens. So hold fast. If you believe that, you will hold fast. If you don't hold fast, it's because you don't really believe it or you're struggling to believe it. Listen, you, you doubt because of your beliefs. We think it's other things that are causing us doubt, but we're actually, we actually doubt because of our beliefs. You doubt God's love at times because you don't really believe he could love someone like you. You give up because of your beliefs. You give up praying. Give up on relationships because you think God isn't going to do anything. We hide our sins. We, we, make, we make light of our sins. Are we despair in our sins? Because under the surface, we believe that Jesus really isn't powerful enough. That his grace hasn't really forgiven me. We don't believe we have a great high priest. We think we just have a great police officer. But if we believe that Jesus is our great high priest, that he is the son of God, that he is alive in the heavens, we will hold fast. So since we have Jesus, so let's hold fast. Hold fast that Christ was crucified and raised from the dead for your sins, no matter what happens in the world. You hold fast to that. Hey, we have a new president. Okay, pray for him. But it doesn't really change anything else that we do here. That we worship, and the global church is gathering today to worship a crucified and resurrected Middle Easterner who reigns over the universe and who we just sang is Lord of all in whom we have no other king but Christ. We worship. We hold fast that Jesus did die for my sins, that they are paid for, and that he is risen from the dead. And now we're living with him. We've been raised with him. We're waiting for him to come back, and we are living for his glory with his people. This is the entire Christian life. 
Are you holding fast to that, that confession? Christ crucified and raised from the dead and returning for you? Do you hold it all the time or just on Sundays? Do you hold fast to your confession at work when people are talking religion? Or do you get nervous and slip into the background of the conversation? Do you hold fast your confession around family who are atheists and agnostic? Friends, we, we loosen our grip because we lose sight of the mercy and majesty of Jesus Christ. We, we loosen when we lose sight of his mercy and of his majesty. Have you tried the monkey bars lately? If you haven't, you're missing out on a wonderful illustration of the gospel. I'm going to go ahead and assume that most of us can't do the monkey bars unless you're into CrossFit. You can hang there for a little bit, us normal people, but then it gets really painful real quick. And not just in your hands, your shoulders, muscles you didn't know you had, all kind, your whole body starts to revolt and how difficult it is. And so you go maybe one or two, it gets really painful and you let go. But I bet if there was a ridiculous reward at the end of those monkey bars, you keep going. I mean, ridiculous reward. Something like, you make these monkey bars, we will pay your house off. Pay off your cars. Pay off all your bills. Pay for all the weddings of your children. Some of the multiple girls are going, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> Tuition for your kids. On and on. Unending supply of cash. And all you have to do is not give up. You think, hmm, I could probably do that. But you know what didn't change? You got a reward, great. But your physicalness didn't change. Okay, can I get a year to prepare for this? No, it has to be now. Ugh, I'll try. But what if they stepped in and said, okay, we're going to sweeten the deal even more. A CrossFit champ is going to go across for you. If only you'll say, okay, I, I believe he's going to do that for me. And you hold on to that promise. Does that sound good? Do we agree to that? Who in the world would go, nah, I'd like to give it a go on my own. You got any chalk I can put on my hands? I really think I could do it. No. Why in the world would anyone ever trust an inferior power supply? Why would we trust a doomed-to-fail system? Why would we not hold fast to Christ? Friends, the strength and security of Christ gives us the strength and security to hold fast that he's holding fast to us. We hold fast to him. We love because he first loved us. He gives us another reason to hold fast and another reason to believe and another reason to keep looking to Jesus because we have a sympathetic and large-hearted Jesus. Look at verse 15. You know, here's another reason why we should hold fast. Verse 15, on the heels of 14, for, here's why, also we should hold fast, for we do not have a high priest was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he says, yes, that while Jesus is the Son of God, while he is this great high priest, and while he is the founder of your faith, he's able to sympathize with you. He doesn't think you are weird. He doesn't look at us in our temptations 
the way that we look at each other in our temptations. See, we often project that onto Christ, that the way we treat each other, we think that that must be how he treats us. Couldn't be more wrong. He looks at us in our temptations. He looks at us in our struggles. He doesn't roll his eyes in disappointment. He looks on us with compassion. If you could ever believe this, this would change your life. You see it in the Gospels. He looks, he sees whole crowds, sick, demon-possessed, filled with unbelief. And the Bible repeatedly says, and he looked on them with compassion. He weeped over an entire city that would not come to him. This is such an uplifting reality. Because our temptations, our failures, our weaknesses, our slowness to change, we, we bring a self-induced sadness and a self-heaped condemnation. We think we're pitiful. And Jesus looks on us with compassion, with sympathy. He has a large heart towards you. He looks on you with love. You know why he's able to sympathize with you? Because he knows what temptation is like. What does the Bible say? He is, he, we don't have one who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able. You know why? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He knows exactly what you go through. And he did it without sin. He knows what your temptations are like. He knows how painful, how difficult, how frustrating temptation can be. Well, yet the tools of temptation have changed. Jesus wasn't tempted with internet images, but what, what, what's the bottom of that temptation? Sexual morality, immorality. Jesus was tempted with that. He must have been because the Bible says he was tempted in every respect, in every way. We could just go down a list of sins. Jesus was really tempted in all of them, but he did not sin. He conquered temptation for us, and he looks on us with compassion. What's tempting you? What is a chronic temptation for you? What? Or the Bible used the phrase a weakness. You just can't seem to get the strength on your own to come to overcome it, to move past it. Be encouraged by this. You aren't a freak. And whatever's tempting you, Jesus was tempted the exact same way. You aren't strange. Whether it's same sex attraction or depression or anxiety, fear, the idol of success. Jesus can enter that space with you. He knows you, and he knows temptation. He knows what you're going through, and he loves you because in Christ, you are never misread, and you are never mistreated. In Jesus, you are never dismissed. Beloved, your spouse may not understand your temptations at times, but Jesus does. And sometimes our friends may not be able to relate, but our heavenly friend our great high priest, he knows. And listen, his sympathy, his kindness, his grace towards us in those moments, do not be confused that this is not an all-approving pat on the shoulder. His sympathy towards us is not in the vein of, hey, it's okay, temptation's tough. I mean, what are you going to do? You're human. That, that's not his sympathy here. His sympathy is not a security clearance for our sins. 
His compassion is a crucifixion for our sins. It's real help for our real problems. If you believe you have a sympathetic and large-hearted high priest towards you, you will go to him, and he will not hide. And listen, there are some of us, I know that, to hear about the kindness of Christ and his compassion and his sympathy, some of us, it is so encouraging and so warming to our hearts. And some of us, we hear it and we're like, okay, whatever. That's very revealing for both of us because it's those who are self-righteous who see the kindness of Christ and are not moved by it. The Pharisees and the Gospels. They see the kindness of Christ and all they can think is, why is he doing that on the Sabbath? Why is he eating with those people? Why isn't he busting them? It's those who know they are unrighteous, who know they are great sinners, whose lives are changed by the kindness of God. So even when you hear about the large-heartedness of Christ, how you react to that reveals to you where, what you think you are. If you know you're unrighteous, you will gladly receive the mercy of Christ. If you are self-righteous, you'll spurn it. Friends, if you know you have a sympathetic high priest, you will run to him for help. If you know you have a sympathetic and large-hearted Jesus, so let's go to him for help. This is verse 16. If verse 15 is true, if this is who Jesus is, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's the only one who can help us. And he's the only one who can always help us. In your weaknesses, in your temptations, you can always go to him for help. So we go to him. Listen, as a pastor, don't ever think your pastors have all the answers. Ever. You'll be way disappointed. I don't. Neither do the other five. We don't. I can't tell you how many times, just in January, while counseling and meeting and praying with people, I, I don't know what else to say. I sit there and talk with other pastors after some of these meetings and pray and think, I don't, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to tell them. I don't know what else to say. And even telling them, I, I don't know what else to tell you. This is why we point people, this is why the Bible says in verse 16, it doesn't say, let us with confidence draw near to the pastor's office. Let us then with confidence draw near to our small group. Those things are good, but they won't always deliver. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's why we must learn to point each other to the throne of grace, to point each other to Christ who is never at a loss for words, who is never kicking back on the throne, scratching his head going, I don't know what else to tell him. I don't know what to do for her. Never happens. So we must point each other to the throne of grace so we don't become armchair saviors. So we don't try to become armchair messiahs. But we point each other to the one whose arms were stretched out on the cross and whose, whose arms are open wide on the throne of grace, inviting us to come to him for real-time help in our real needs. And I love that it's described as a throne of grace. You live in the reign of grace. For Christians, God's throne is not described as one of wrath. 
His throne is not domineering and fearful, but one of grace. It's not a throne of disgust. It's not a throne of I told you so's. It's a throne of grace. The reign of grace, the kingdom of grace is where you live now. Of Jesus' death and resurrection reigning over your life. Now you are defined by that. You aren't defined by your sins. You aren't defined by your good deeds. You aren't defined by your successes or your failures. But you are only and now always defined by grace. So we go to the throne of grace. And what we find there is our merciful high priest, our sympathetic high priest. We don't have a ruler who doesn't know what it's like to live our lives. You go throughout human history, whether that's presidents or kings or monarchs or dictators, they don't know the lives of the people. But we have a king who knows the lives of his people who was tempted in every way that we are, as yet without sin. So we go to him. But how do we go to him? How do we draw near? We go there by prayer? Yes. We go there by faith. What does the Bible say? We draw near what? To the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Some translations say boldness. So sometimes we are really guilty of going, okay, I guess I'll pray about it because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm Christian. No. That will not help you. That will only make things worse. I know the Bible says I should pray about this. I I mean, whatever. I guess I will. No, don't ever do that. You draw near with confidence, with boldness, that you have been given the right by Jesus to go to the throne of grace. In a manner of speaking, you have not earned it, but you do deserve to be there because Christ earned it for you. You go to that throne, that you have confidence, you're allowed to be there, that Jesus is your credentials, that now you are unhindered in going to the throne of grace, and you have confidence that, Father, I'm coming to you, and I believe, I'm confident, and in boldness, that you're going to help me, that you're going to give me mercy and grace in time of need. No fear. Full of courage to go to the throne of grace. And we ask for help. We hold fast. What do we ask? What, what are we asking for? And our weaknesses. This whole thing's about our weaknesses and our temptations, our failures, our fears, and our doubts. And so we go to him for help. Friends, grace is instant, ready help in your temptations. Tempted with anger, you feel it just boiling. You stop. You, you must draw near to the throne of grace. Father, help me now, please. Help me. You have to. Because you can't do it on your own. Tempted with lust, drugs, drunkenness, envy, pride. You stop. You can feel. You can feel your temptations. As Genesis 4 says, that sin is crouching on the door, but you must master it. So how? We draw near to the throne of grace. I think this should be one of our most repeated prayers. Father, help me. I need help, verse 16, in time of need. We get mercy, the Bible says, verse 16. Look at what it says, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How does mercy and grace help us? 
when you sinned, you blew it. You didn't go to the throne of grace. You tried on your own. You tried to fight, or you didn't even try to fight. You just gave in, and you just sinned. And then now you feel the condemnation. Now you feel the shame, and you feel the guilt. Instead of despairing, and instead of stewing, then you still go to the throne of grace and receive mercy. Remembering that you have been pardoned by Christ. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Christ has done what the law could not do, delivered us from our sins. And now we have been forgiven in full, pardoned. That's how you get mercy. You remember what Christ has done for you. And then when you're battling, you go to get grace, go to get help, go to get power, the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit alive in you, grace for the day and grace for the moment, grace for that second to get help. Help in time of need. We can't help ourselves. We are inept. We're, we're incapable of helping ourselves. That's why we need help from him in time of need. Christianity isn't a list of theories. It's not a list of just cute verses to memorize. It is help for your life. Will you go to him for help? Will you stop trying to do it on your own and go to him so you may receive mercy and grace in time of need? Will you hold fast to your confession of your great high priest who paid for your sins and was alive for you? Will you hold fast because he is sympathetic and large-hearted towards you? Even when your sins are piling up and you can't believe that you sin that way again, hold fast to your confession that Christ paid for your sins. And with boldness and with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy in time of need because you do what you believe. So believe this. Believe you have a sympathetic and large-hearted Jesus who is offering you help from his throne of grace. If people will confidently dance on a Dollar Tree table, surely, beloved, we can confidently go to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. We don't pretend we don't need help. Let's be the people who receive help from our great God and Savior. Let's go to, let's go to him now. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.